Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. I want to talk to you tonight about a word that is almost unheard of in our English vocabulary today. I want to talk to you this evening about the word commitment. And our and in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul uh, speaks of this word. He actually speaks in it in the chapter before in 1 Timothy as well. But let's read in 2 Timothy chapter number 1. I'm going to start reading in verse number 7. And if you don't have a Bible, just listen very carefully or look on with someone by you. And verse number 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's a great verse for this day that we're living in. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by, by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, verse number 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Verse number 14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. An unusual word in our English vocabulary today. One out of two marriages in America end up in a divorce. Lack of commitment. The ratio is not that high in the church, but nevertheless high enough that we should be very concerned. Last year, well over 5,000 Baptist preachers quit the ministry. They threw in the towel. It's called a lack of commitment. John Maxwell said, ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments unto the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. Listen to those words again. It's a little bit long, but listen to what he said. Ordinary people, I count myself as an ordinary people, ordinary people who make simple spiritual commitments under the Lordship of Jesus Christ can make an extraordinary impact in their world. Those of us who are old enough 
to remember, and we have these images etched in our memory forever of 9-11, and especially in those two buildings in New York City. That day we saw levels of commitment that you very rarely ever see with your own two eyes. We read about those kind of things in the history books down the road, but we very rarely ever get to see them ourselves. But that day we saw it happening as there were thousands and thousands of people who were coming down the stairs. There were others who were going up the stairs, firemen, some with as much as 100 pounds of equipment strapped on their back, policemen, and emergency workers. And hardly a word was spoken between the two groups of people as hardly a word had to be spoken as those that were going up were saying to those who were going down, if needs be, I will give my life so you can have your life. And on that day, over 330 firemen gave their lives. And on that day, over 60 policemen and emergency workers gave their lives. We've got things so far out of whack in America today. We pay baseball players $25, $30 million or more to play a baseball game. Football players, $30 million a year to play a football game. Movie stars, $30, $40 million to make one single movie. And yet we have rookie policemen who put on a uniform and maybe start out at $45 or $50,000, firemen $42,000, $43,000. We have men and women in our military today. Some have to have food stamps to get by. What a shame and what a reproach. But these men and women who have put on these uniforms, these uniforms have made a commitment. And they are saying, if needs be, I would lay down my life so that you can have your life. Commitment. Let me give you a word that goes with this word commitment tonight. At first it's going to sound negative, but I'll show you by the end of my message in a few moments why it's anything but negative. But if you become a person of deep commitment in your Christian life, the world will not understand. And some of your friends may not even understand. And it may very well be possible that some of your own family will not understand. And there may very well be times in your Christian life when you will find yourself alone. But this business of being alone is nothing new. All through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we find people of deep commitment. Noah built an ark and warned his generation all alone. Elijah prophesied and wept alone. Daniel prayed alone. Jonah went to Nineveh to, to preach all alone. And Paul stood before King Nero alone, and John on the Isle of Patmos alone, and Jesus hung on a cross and suffered and bled and died all alone. And if you become this person of deep commitment in your Christian life, the world will not understand. Your friends may turn their back upon you. Your own family may turn their back upon you. Let me give you another word before I get into the heart of the message tonight that goes along with this word commitment. It's the word motivation. Hey, if you're going to become a person of deep commitment in your Christian life, you're going to have to get motivated. 
And I will say up front for you tonight that I cannot get motivated for you. Your pastor cannot get motivated for you. We might say words of encouragement to cause you to want to become motivated, but if you get motivated, it will be because you decided that you wanted to be motivated. I joined the United States Marine Corps, I told you this morning, in 1969. I actually thought when I left the recruiter's office, I thought I was a United States Marine. Well, I found out in boot camp, I was a lot of things, but I was not a Marine. You're not a, in my day, you was not a Marine until you graduated from boot camp. Now they have a, a crucible that they do, and it's a very strenuous event and activity. And then after you have completed the crucible, you're then a United States Marine. But for us, it was the day of graduation from boot camp. And when you get to boot camp, they take everything away from you that has anything to do with civilian life, and they ship it home to mama. All your civilian clothing, everything, your, your, your shirt, your pants, your belt, even your socks and your underwear, they give you all military clothing, all military equipment, combat boots. And if you're a smoker, they take your cigarettes away from you. In my day, you weren't allowed to smoke to about the fifth or sixth week of boot camp. It was about the fourth week of boot camp. I was told to take four other recruits and myself over to the dental office and have some work done. And then we were to come directly back to Squad Bay. We went over. We had the work done. We're on our way back to Squad Bay. And one of the guys in that little detail spoke up. And he said, do any of you smoke? It just so happened that all five of us were smokers. To this day, I'm not 100% for sure where he got the cigarettes from. I'm sure he stole them from somebody at the dental, dental office. But we didn't care where he got them from. We were just glad he had them. We pulled over in the clump of trees and we lit up the smoking lamp and we were having one more smoking party. When all of a sudden, out of all the drill instructors at Paris Island, our own drill instructor, Skinny Sergeant Lunsford, he was the meanest drill instructor on that base. You say, Tim, you didn't know all the other drill instructors. I didn't have to know all the others. I'm telling you, he was the meanest. He went berserk. He started jumping up and down. He was flailing his hands in the air. He was saying words I had never heard before. And he kept telling us they were going to kick us out of the Marines. Now, they weren't going to kick us out of the Marines, but he had us believing they were going to kick us out of the Marines. They got us back to Squad Bay. Gunnery Sergeant Fortner came, and he said, I'll tell you what we will do with these five. We will send them to one-day motivation. I'd never heard of that, but I was getting ready to get introduced to it. And there were, there were us five, and there were a bunch of other recruits from other platoons that had messed up, and I imagine there's 70 or 80 of us all together. They rolled us out of the rack at about 4.30 in the morning. They told us we were going on a 20-mile mark. I had never been on a 20-mile anything except in a car, and I ran track in high school, but I was a short-distance runner. And, but they didn't march us, they ran us. And there, it didn't matter what kind of physical condition you were in, every one of us were falling to the ground sicker than dogs. And finally, at noon hour, they told us we were going to eat. They handed us a box of sea rations. I'd never seen sea rations in my life. I was used to mama's home cooking. They gave us a little contraption called a P-38. I couldn't figure that dumb thing out. And finally, I got a can of peanut butter open enough to get a couple fingers in and got some peanut butter, handed it to my buddy, and he got some. They gave us 10 minutes to eat, and that was all we got was a little bit of peanut butter. 
And then they rent us that afternoon. And then finally, about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we came up on this huge ditch. It was maybe about 60 to 80 feet across the other side. They told us we had to get from this side to the other side. And that wouldn't have been so bad, except for the fact that it was a sewage ditch. That's what we said. Now, have you ever been in a situation that was not funny, but you got to laughing anyhow? I'm here to tell you there was nothing funny about it. Here we are, up to the middle of our waist in this stuff. We're laughing our full heads off. All of a sudden, bullets started whizzing over the top of our heads. I'd heard about these drill instructors. I thought one of them had lost the presence of his mind, was trying to kill us all. Well, they weren't shooting at us. They were going over the top of our heads 30, 40 feet. We didn't know that. But all of a sudden, nobody was laughing anymore. We were ducking down and getting across there. We got back to Squad Bay. They had us clean up, us five in platoon 305, and they brought all five of us down in front of the entire platoon. And skinny Sergeant Lunford came over and he started with me first. He put his nose not right next to my nose and he looked in my eyeballs and he said, maggot, he called me a maggot. He said, maggot, are you motivated at the top of my lungs? I said, I yelled, sir, yes, sir. He said, give me 20 push-ups. I gave him 25. I stood back up, my feet out of 45 degree angle, my shoulders square back, my eyeballs looking straight ahead. He came over. He put his nose next to my nose. He looked in my eyeballs. He said, hog, he called me a hog. He said, are you motivated? Hey, I'd never been so motivated in all my life. Now, that was toward the end of the week. And the first part of the next week, I made what was called platoon guide. Platoon guide carried the colors of the platoon. It was the honor position of the platoon, and I never relinquished that position to the day I graduated. You want to know why? I was motivated. I went into the Marines as a reservist. Nobody pulled any strings for me. I was not drafted. I joined the Marine Corps in 1969, but right in the middle of boot camp, I told my drill instructor, I didn't want to be a reservist. I want to be a full-time Marine. I was motivated. I graduated, as I told you this morning, with a meritorious promotion. I was motivated. Camp Lejeune, another meritorious promotion, two in less than three months, almost unheard of in those days in the Marine Corps. And then in Vietnam, I made Marine Marine of the Month in my battalion. You want to know why? I was motivated. I was going to make a career out of the Marine Corps. I love the Marine Corps. I was motivated. And you know why you don't ever call a Marine an ex-Marine? There is no such thing. Once a Marine, always a Marine. You know why? We are motivated. And you got the right flag for this sermon right here tonight. That's the Marine Corps flag there on my left. Now, you say, Tim, there's got to be a reason why you just told us all that. Oh, there's a good reason. You know what some of you Baptists need to do? You need to go to one-day motivation. <laughs> yeah. Some of you have convinced yourselves that coming to church and sitting in a seat is your service to God. That's not service to God. Matter of fact, we don't even come to serve God. We come to worship we come to honor, worship, exalt the name of Jesus. When you leave here, when you drive off on the Bison Avenue tonight, then you're going to go serve. You're going to the mission field when you leave here tonight. But in order to do that, you've got to get motivated. Now, I want you to go with me back to the book of Daniel very quickly. If you go to Daniel chapter number 3, 
And I'm going to show you one of the greatest examples of commitment in the Old Testament. And it's a great story. It's, it's full of excitement and drama. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read starting at verse number 12 in a moment, but let me paraphrase what has happened from chapter 3 and verse 1 to verse number 12. There's a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Neb, we can call him Neb. Neb doesn't respect God. And we don't have to respect Neb. Neb's got an ego bigger than the Empire State Building. He is full of himself, like a lot of politicians I know. And no Neb has been listening to his people tell him again and again how wonderful he is and how great he is and how marvelous he is. I tell college students all the time, there's nothing wrong with people saying nice things about you. The problem is when you start to believe them. And you really begin to think you're somebody. And after a while, you begin to believe that God couldn't get along without you. But I got news for you. God was getting along without us before we got here, and he'll be getting along without us after we're dead and gone. He wants to use us. But we've got to make ourselves usable. So they decide that they're going to have a big day to honor the king. They build a statue. This thing's about 90 foot tall. It's huge. It's made out of gold. And then they're going to have a special dedication, and everyone's going to be there. Who's coming? The, the sheriffs are coming. The governors are coming. The treasurers are coming. All the rulers of the province, all of the big shots are coming, and they're going to bow. Hey, man, if the big shots are coming and they're going to bow, who am I not to bow? You know what it is on the part of the king? It's an act of intimidation. Let me say to the young people tonight, the devil is a liar. The devil is a cheat. And the devil does not play fair. By the way, parents, that's an interesting word, fair. If you're a young person, your child says, well, that's not fair, tell them that fair is where a pig goes to win a blue ribbon, all right? <laughs> Life isn't always fair. But on the part of the king, it's an act of intimidation. Football season is in full force. The most expensive commercials today on Sunday afternoon football were the beer commercials. They always have the most beautiful women, these most beautiful animals, these macho men. And they're promoting their light beer. But if they really believed in truth and advertisement the way they said that they did and the way they're supposed to, right after they showed that 60-second commercial, there would be another one. And it would go something like this. There's a guy sitting in a bar in northern Kentucky right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio, and he's been drinking all day. He's drunk. He's so drunk, he stumbles out to his pickup truck in the parking lot. He gets in his pickup truck, and he starts his truck. He's going to drive himself home, but he's drunk. He's so drunk that when he gets on the interstate, he doesn't realize that he's going the wrong way. There's a church bus from a local Assembly of God church. They've been to Kings Island. And they've no doubt had a great time, fun and activities and excitement. They're on their way back home. Maybe they've had some sing some songs. Maybe they've had some jokes. Maybe they've just been laughing and enjoying themselves. But all of a sudden, it all ended as a drunk driver hit the church bus and the bus burst into flames 
And that day, that evening, 34 young people went out into eternity because of a drunk driver. Hey, they're not going to show you that commercial. You know why? Then you won't drink their light beer. The devil's a liar. He's deceitful, and he's dishonest, and he tries to intimidate people. So the day comes for this special dedication, and the, the, the word is given that when you hear all these musical instruments begin to play, that you're to bow down, and you're to worship the king, and you're to worship this golden image that has been set up. And that day, thousands and thousands and thousands of people bowed, and they worshiped. But there were three who did not bow, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me ask you a question. When all these other thousands of people are bowing and they're not, don't you think they had to feel somewhat alone? Of course they did. They're made out of the same flesh that you and I are made out of. Of course they did. But the majority is not always right. We have proved that in elections on many occasions. The majority is not always right. And, and that day, they're bowing and they're worshiping, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego refuses to bow. You know why? They knew that God said you're to have no other God before the true and the living God. And so now, the tatter tales have run to tell the king. Look at verse number 12. There are certain Jews whom thou set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And then, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the ultimate intimidation. I've had the privilege to meet presidents of this country and other countries as well. But every time, every single time that I ever met one of them, they, always, they were always super nice. They were always very cordial. They were super friendly. But this king is angry. He's mad because they've reigned on his party. They have messed up his day. And so not only will you find yourself alone when you become this person of deep commitment, that you've got to understand that the world may very well get angry with you. They won't understand your commitment, and they'll get angry with you. You know, today, we're in the minority. It used to be that, it used to be that the world would look to the church for guidance and for leadership. You understand that in my day when when I went to high school, do you understand that we didn't have any ball games on Wednesday night? You want to know why we didn't have any ball games on Wednesday night? Because Wednesday night was prayer meeting night, and the people in the community, the schools knew that they were going to church on Wednesday night. And nowadays, they don't, they don't bother about any day. Carl and I go down to the lobby on Sunday morning to get ready to go to church, get us a bite to eat, and there'll be ball teams at 8 and 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. They're going to go play ball on Sunday morning. There's no respect for God. There's no respect for the house of God. The Bible declares, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. There's not anything wrong with you having nice things. 
There ain't anything wrong with you having a nice car, a nice home, a boat, or a camper, unless those things come between you and God. If you have a boat that takes you out of church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you probably ought to sell the boat. It's not that the boat itself is sinful. It's allowed, you've allowed the boat to come between you and God. We live in the most materialistic generation there's ever been. We go out and buy things that we don't need with money that we don't have to impress people we don't even like. We're so busy trying to catch up with the Joneses, and about the time we catch up, they refinance. We have to start all over. But you, have to, you have to make a determination. And you understand they're going to get angry with you. This world is not God's friend. This world does not love your Jesus. This world does not love your Bible. This world does not love your church. There are people in this world that would just as soon chop your head off of your shoulders as to hear you mention the name of Jesus. They hate your God, and they hate your Jesus. I was invited to speak at Camp Lejeune. Yes, I was at Camp Lejeune. Did you drink the water? I drank the water. I don't think it had any effect on me at all. But I was invited to speak. I had been there on other occasions, but this was, was different. Chaplain Mozan, a great chaplain, loved the Lord, Bible believer, soul winner. And he invited me to come and speak, and we got it set up, and then 9-11 happened. So when 9-11 happened, I figured that they would cancel the speaking engagement, but instead they doubled down on it. General Myers, the CEO of the base, said we're ready mentally, we're ready, we're ready physically, and now we want to be ready spiritually. Give me a whole bunch of generals like that. So I went and spoke for three days, five and six times a day. Hundreds and hundreds of Marines came to Christ. But it was the week of the Marine Corps birthday, November the 10th, and they asked me to speak at the Marine Corps prayer breakfast, which I knew it would be a very ecumenical event when I agreed to go. But let me tell you how I am. If you invite me to speak to your club or your organization or your company and I agree to come, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to preach. Now, you don't have to have me back a second time, but you're going to get a wagon load the first time. And uh, when these clubs and organizations I spoke at a Kiwanis club in McKenzie, Tennessee, about 100 Kiwanis. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, you actually preach. We've had preachers here before, but they never preach. Well, you have a lawyer, they talk about law. You have a doctor, they talk about medicine. You have a mechanic, they talk about engines. If you have a preacher, they preach. And so they invited me to speak at the Marine Corps prayer breakfast. And then two weeks before... General, or, or Chaplain Mozan called me. We've had numbers of conversations on the phone, and he's a happy man, and we've had great conversations, but on this day, he was nervous, and, and, and I knew something was wrong, and he said, now, Reverend Lee, you are our keynote speaker at the prayer breakfast, but he said, before you speak, a Jewish rabbi is going to say a few words and pray, and then a Muslim cleric is going to say a few words and pray. And he said, Reverend Lee, we don't want to offend anyone. I said, look, Chaplain Mozon, call those other two fellows back and tell them not to worry about offending me at all. 
Oh, yes, I did. I asked you a fair question. Why are they always so concerned about the other guy for? You know whose faith is under attack in America today? It's the Christian faith. It's open seeds and on Christians. You can laugh at Christians. You can harass Christians. You can make fun of Christians. That's why I'm here to tell you tonight, church, this isn't the time to be backing up. This isn't the time to be apologizing. This is the time to be strong. This is the time to be courageous. This is the time to be the salt and to be the light that God intended for you and I to be. And understand, they will get angry with you. Number three. Not only will you be alone, not only will they get angry, but number three, they will then begin to ask questions. Look at verse number 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true? Now, he knew it was true, people. But in asking a question in a little bit, He's going to give them an opportunity to compromise. He said, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not you serve my gods, nor worship the golden image that I have set up? He's got a lot of questions, but he doesn't have the answers. They will ask you questions. When you become deeply committed to the things of God, let me give you five things. The Bible says if you're faithful in a few things, you should be made ruler over many things. Let me give you five things you can learn to be faithful in in a few things. Number one, being faithful to the house of God. Number two, being faithful to the Bible. Number two, being faithful in your prayer life. Number four, being faithful in your giving. And number five, being faithful in your witnessing. Those five things. The Bible says if you're faithful in a few things, ye should be made ruler over many things. Speaking of the kingdom of God on this earth in the millennial reign of Christ, you want to have a place, a position to serve during that thousand-year millennial reign? You learn to be faithful to the things of God now. They will ask questions. You know what they want to know? They want to know if what you say you have is really real. And hey, they don't want to know if it's real when everything's going great, when all your bills are paid, when the doctor's giving you a clean bill of health, when your job is secure, when your children are all behaving, they don't want to know how your Christianity's going to stand when everything's going great. They want to know how it's going to stand when the bottom falls out, when your 16-year-old granddaughter is killed in a horrible accident. When the doctor tells you you have cancer, when, whenever they tell you that your job doesn't exist anymore, when your child is in trouble, juvenile hall, then they want to know how your Christianity is going to stand the test. They're watching you tonight, friend. This world is watching. And the, some of these people are going to hit rock bottom, and you know what? You work by them every day, you go to school with them, you're around them at, in shopping malls, and they see you, and, and they know you're a Christian, and then when the bottom falls out for them, they're going to come to you. If you've been standing true to God, and you've been living for the Lord, and you're making your life count, and you're committed to the things of God, that's who they're going to want to hear from. Not someone that's wobbling on the axle. 
Not someone that, that plays church on Sunday but doesn't have time for God on Monday. They want to know if it's really real. And then the last thing tonight, not only will you find yourself alone, not only will they get angry, not only will they ask questions, but then they will give you an opportunity to acquiesce, to give in, to compromise. Look, at, look if you were at verse number 15. This is the king speaking to him. He says to these three young men, now if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, all these other musical instruments, you fall down and worship the image which I made. He's given them a second chance. And he says, if you do it, you already messed up my day. But if you do it right this time, he says, well, he said, everything's fine. Everything will be okay. You'll be forgiven. But then he gives them the ultimate threat. But if ye worship not, you shall be cast the same eye into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God? Who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He sounds like an antichrist. He sounds like Pharaoh. When, when Moses said, let the people go, Pharaoh said, I don't know the Lord. Neither, neither will I let the people go. This, this is what this guy sounds like. Who is that God? Well, he's getting ready to find out who their God really is. But ladies and gentlemen, just because you passed one great big test doesn't mean the devil's going to leave you alone. There were victories all over this altar this morning and up and down the aisles. And there were, you know what, Touch, I, I'm, I'm impressed with your facilities. I think you have gorgeous facilities, but I'm a, I don't want to hurt you or offend you tonight, but I just tell you tonight, God's not all that impressed with our facilities. We're talking about God that made the moon and the stars and the planets, uh, the universe made you and me. So he's not impressed with brick and mortar and plastic and wood and steel. But you know what touches God? And I looked across this morning, there were grown men weeping and grown women with tears running down their face. That's what touches God. I heard Evangelist Lester Roloff say years ago that one of the most dangerous times in the life of a Christian is when you've just won a great victory. And why is that? Because if you're not careful, you're liable to get a little arrogant, a little puffed up. And about that time, then you get the rug pulled out from underneath you. They will give you an opportunity to compromise. The devil never quits. He works overtime, and I've never seen him working like he's working in our day, in our generation today, to destroy lives, destroy children, destroy families, to destroy preachers, to destroy ministries. I've never seen it like it is today. He's not going to let up. You know, what I personally believe is, I won't argue with you about it, but I believe he knows his days are numbered. I believe that. And I believe that trumpet is going to sound soon. And then we're out of here. So how do they respond? How do the, how do these three, how do these three Hebrew 
Young men respond, look at verse number 16, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. In verse number 17, if it be so, if what you're saying to us is so, our God, you ought to underline our God, not just any old God, I like that, our God, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, verse number 18. But if not, you say, Tim, is that a lack of faith? I don't think so. I think it's faith in reality. I think they're saying our God is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, but it doesn't matter, king. We're still not bound down to you. We're still not going to serve you and your gods. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now, if you think the king was mad in verse number 13, look at verse 19. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visions was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than is wont to be heated. He didn't want just a regular fire, two times a fire, three times a fire. He wants seven times hotter than it's ever been. One time the fire would have killed him. He doesn't want that. He wants seven times. How hot is this fire? It's so hot that some of the king's personal guards lost their lives when they threw Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the furnace. So they throw Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego into the furnace, and then, after a while, the king goes over to look in the furnace. Now, why would he do that? Why would he go look in the furnace? He just built a fire seven times harder than ever. I'll tell you exactly why. He had heard stories about their God. He had heard stories. And in the back of his mind, he's wondering. They said, our God is able to deliver us out of thine hand, O king. And he goes over and he looks inside. And the Bible says he was astonished. I bet he was. He turns around to some of his people. And he said, didn't we just throw three in? What's the matter, king? Can't you count? One, two, three. A, B, C. Little kindergarten kid can figure that out. He said, there's not three. There's four. And the four is the image of the Son of God. You say, Tim, how would he ever know what Jesus looked like? If you ever see him face to face, won't anybody ever have to tell you who he is? You'll know who he is. And I told you a while ago that that word alone would sound negative, but I would tell you that it was anything but negative. The world will turn their back upon you. Your friends may turn their back. Your family may turn their back, but he'll never turn his back on you. He's there in the good times. He's there in the bad times. He's there in the daytime. He's there in the nighttime. He's on the mountaintop. He's in the valley. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll always be there for you. You, can, you don't ever, ever, ever have to doubt it. He'll be there. When walking through that valley, commitment. One of my 
One of my favorite basketball players in the NBA, and I don't put much stock in the NBA anymore, a bunch of overgrown babies, <laughs> way too much money, don't know about how to behave themselves. I used to love to watch Larry Bird play basketball. And Larry Bird was from a small community in Indiana. Connie and I both were raised in Southern Illinois basketball country. We had football, but it was just to wait till basketball season got there. Larry Bird was raised in a little community called French Lick, Indiana. And uh, he, he was raised in adversity. His, uh, his dad was an alcoholic. His mom and dad got divorced early in Larry's life. His dad ended up committing suicide. His mom worked two and three jobs just to take care of her family. I want the young people to hear this tonight. When Larry Bird was in the fifth grade, the fifth grade, without any fatherly figure or any coach telling him to do so, he started going and shooting 500 free throws a day, every day. He did that all through grade school, through high school, through college, and even most of his pro career. Five hundred free throws a day. His sophomore year of high school, he made the varsity team. But at the very beginning of the season, he broke his ankle. He was devastated. But the coach told him, look, you get the cast off, you get rehabilitated in the season, you get back on the team. And sure enough, just in time for tournament play. Then the regional championship Larry Bird and his team are down by one point with seconds left on the clock, and the other team fouls Larry Bird. It's a one and one. There's 3,000 people in that gymnasium. Half of the people wants him to make the shots, and half of them wants him to miss. He takes the ball, he dribbles it a couple of times, he takes a deep breath, he shoots the first shot, he makes it. Ties the game. He takes the ball, he dribbles it a couple of times, he takes a deep breath, he shoots the second shot, and he makes it. And they won the game. He's in the locker room. A local reporter comes to him and says, Larry, what were you thinking about when you were out there on that free throw line shooting those two free throws? In his own 14-and-a-half-year-old vocabulary, he said, well, I was just thinking about being in my backyard shooting 500 free throws that I shoot every day. It was the very next year. They're in a regional championship again against their arch rival, New Bedford, Indiana. And Larry Bird and his team are up by six points with about two minutes left to play. Larry has a teammate by the name of Beezer. Beezer has a lot of natural talent, but he's a team clown. He's a cut-up. He's often late for practice. And Coach Holland has told him more than one time, Beezer, one of these days you're going to cost us a game. Beezer has the basketball, and the other team fouls him. It's a one and one If he makes both of them, they're up by eight. This game's over. He goes to the free throw line. He shoots the first shot. He misses. The other team gets the ball, goes down and scores. Beezer ends up with a basketball again, and the other team immediately fouls him. It's a one and one if he makes both of them, they're back up by six. Surely this game's still on ice. He goes to the free throw, free throw line. He shoots the first shot. He misses. Other team gets the ball, goes down and scores. 
By this time, Bird and others are trying their best to keep the ball away from Beezer, but he ended up with it again. And yes, they fouled him, and you guessed it, he missed the third time. The other team tied the score, and the other team eventually won the game. Beezer's in the locker room. He's crying like a little baby with his head in his hands, and Coach Holland walks over to him and said, Beezer, I told you, one of these days, you would cost us a game. You see, with Beezer, basketball was nothing more than a convenience. This doesn't cost me too much. If there's not too great of a price to pay, if there's not too many sacrifices to make, then I'm going to play this game. And I'm going to have some fun. But with Larry Bird, basketball became a way of life. Basketball became a commitment. Would to God. We could find people in our good Baptist churches that could be committed to the things of God the way Larry Bird could have been committed to basketball. Folks, what we're talking about tonight is eternity. What we're talking about is forever. What we're talking about matters forever. People saying yes to Christ, their lives are changed forever. Homes being put back together. I saw at least one husband and wife this morning that both of them were saved. Maybe more than that, but at least one husband and wife last week in Pensacola. Seven husbands and wives. Can you imagine what that does for their home? What that does for their family? And the husband and the wife both come to Christ? We're talking about eternity. Let me give you one more sports story, and then we'll go. It's a football story. Alabama and Auburn, arch rivals. Bear Bryant was the coach of Alabama, and Pat Dye was the coach at Auburn. Alabama's up by five points. With a little time left on the clock, Alabama has the ball. But their first-string quarterback has been injured and cannot go back into the game. Coach Bryant calls his second-string quarterback and gives him explicit instructions. You go out, you take the hike, you drop your knee to let the clock run out, you do it again and again and again, the game's over. But this second-string quarterback, he hasn't had his name in the paper. He hasn't gotten any glory for himself. And when he got out to the huddle, he disobeyed his coach. And he called a pass play. And sure enough, it looks like he's got a guy wide open, will score an easy touchdown. He throws the ball downfield, and out of nowhere comes Auburn's fastest defender and intercepts the ball and takes off running for the other end of the field. Outran the entire Alabama team until he got to the four-yard line, four yards from scoring the winning touchdown, and he's tackled by the second-string quarterback. The two coaches are walking off the field. Coach Dye keeps saying, I don't understand. I don't get it. And Bear Bryant asked him, said, what don't you understand? What don't you get? He said, that 
guy that intercepted that ball is the fastest guy on our team. That second string quarterback of yours has to be one of the slowest guys on your team. I don't understand how he could possibly catch my guy. And Bear Bryant said, let me explain it to you. Your guy was running for a touchdown. My guy was running for his life. <laughs> well, tonight we're running for far more than a touchdown. We're running for lives. For eternity. Ask you a question. Where's your level of commitment right now to the things of God? Where's your level of commitment? Let me ask you this way. If everyone in this church's level of commitment to the things of God is where your level of commitment is at, where would this church's level of commitment be? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.